The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. Wake up, everyone. It's time for the Steve Noble Show, where biblical Christianity meets the everyday issues of life in your home, at work, and even in politics. Steve is an ordinary man who believes in an extraordinary God. And on his show, there's plenty of grace and lots of truth, but no sacred cows. Call Steve now at 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Or check him out online at thestevenobleshow.com. And now, here's your host, Steve Noble. Do you go to a mainline denomination church? Do you go to Evangelical Lutheran Church in America? Do you go to United Church of Christ? Do you go to United Methodist Church? I would throw uh, PCUSA in there. Uh, If you do, if you go to one of those mainline Protestant denominations, my question for you is, why? (laughs) Like, what are you doing? Uh, we're going to talk to a friend of mine, Warren Cole Smith, who's the president of Ministry Watch, wrote for years um, with uh, – oh, this is – when, when you turn – I'm 57. I'm just having one of those moments. I just lost it. World Magazine. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Warren Cole Smith wrote for World Magazine for years. Uh, just a great thinker, a great author. Great Christian brother, and now he's the president of Ministry Watch. We'll talk to him in the second segment. The, the title of his little article, The Decline of the Mainline Continues, but Non-Denominations and Anglicans are on the rise. So what's going on with the church landscape in America? So we'll talk to Warren in the second segment. We're gonna. I love this article. This was in World Magazine. Pride Month is sterile. A look at what may be behind declining support for same-sex marriage. Isn't that interesting? And then this one, this uh, title caught my attention. If you call teachers heroes, you're part of the problem. So if you think teachers are heroes, you're part of the problem. Very interesting take on that. An important subject. And so, you know, I, I continue as as we do shows where I'm just kind of walking through articles and news of the day, breaking news, things that uh, you, you've heard of. And then other things that are a little bit more under the radar. I'm kind of looking down the road. Uh, trying to see where are we going as a nation. We know we re- where we're going ultimately theologically. Uh, but between now and then, uh, just to see, to be aware of what's happening so that we know how we should be praying, how we should engage, where we should engage, perhaps where we shouldn't be throwing pearls to swine. And so that's kind of what I do when I'm going through news of the day and doing shows like yesterday or today, uh, looking out over the horizon, seeing what's going on to keep us aware so that we can be uh, as as good a stewards as we can be of our salvation in these days, darkening days as we move towards the days uh, of Noah, like, like in the days of Noah, which is where we're going to end up. And you cannot change that, but you can affect change along the way. So this one's important because here in North Carolina, where I live, they are uh, getting close to dealing, uh, being able to get a, a, a bill done, which our uh, walleye liberal governor will veto, and then the Republicans will override it, dealing with all the transgender transition stuff for teenagers, okay, people under the age of 18. So this is important because in most of these states where they pass these things, there are temporary injunctions because the battle doesn't necessarily uh, begin and end in the legislature. Oftentimes today it ends in a courtroom. So this one is a very important story. Tennessee law banning gender transition of minors sees initial win 
in a federal court. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit ruled Saturday, just a couple days ago, in favor of a Tennessee law protecting minors from gender gender transition surgeries and hormone treatments. The two-to-one decision reversed the district court's statewide preliminary injunction. So the district court says, no, you can't do it. And then the U.S. Court of Appeals, a portion of it, a two-to-one, that's small group, they don't usually go to the full Court of Appeals, which is uh, nine, but they usually do a three-judge panel. And reversed it. This case is far from over, but this is a big win, said Tennessee Attorney General Jonathan Scrimetti. The Court of Appeals lifted the injunction, meaning the law can be fully enforced and recognized that Tennessee is likely to win the constitutional argument uh, in the case. On this point, uh, the dissenting judge said the district court abused its discretion in granting a statewide preliminary injunction. The Sixth Circuit's opinion was a declaration of judicial restraint, declared Family Action Council of Tennessee. It held that the court does not have the power to make law for everyone in a state, a constitutionally justified and refreshing departure from what federal judges now often uh, do. As to constitutional questions, the challengers claim that the act violated the United States Constitution's guarantee of due process and equal protection. They asserted a substantive due process right of parents to make medical decisions for their children. All right. So that that's a smart way to approach this. Uh, Under equal protection, they claim both the act committed sex-based discrimination and that it's discriminated on the basis of quasi-suspect class of gender identity. The court rejected all these claims. While the Sixth Circuit acknowledged the right of parents to make decisions concerning the care, custody, and control of their children, it argued that, quote, no Supreme Court case extends it to a general right to receive new medical or experimental drug treatments. Furthermore, the challengers have not shown that a right to new medical treatments is deeply rooted in our history and traditions. It pointed to the work of the Food and Drug Administration as a prominent example. There's no constitutional right to use a new drug that the FDA has determined is unsafe or ineffective. Therefore, state legislatures are usually entitled to a strong presumption of validity in regulating health and safety and are particularly entitled to deference from judges where medical and scientific uncertainty exist. Parental rights is the most open area for the plaintiffs to pursue going forward by arguing that the rights should be extended to medical care. However, I think this is Fowler from the group in Tennessee. I think that the fact that the care is rather new, controversial, and not approved by the FDA will be an impediment to getting at least the Sixth Circuit to extend any right to medical care to new or experimental treatment. So this is a this is a good win. It's an important win. It's not an ironclad win because you heard several times in this article about the FDA. So... Can we trust the FDA, friends? Uh, No. So what happens when the FDA comes out and gives approval to this whole spectrum of transgender treatment from the removal of breasts of a 13-year-old girl to hormone treatments, hormone blockers, that whole nightmare of a cocktail? What if... And that shouldn't be too hard for us to imagine. What if the FDI comes out, the FDA comes out and says, yeah, we actually think that's fine. Now you got a whole new problem. So this, just because your state or my state passes a law, doesn't mean this is a, a win that's going to be in concrete. Because unfortunately in this country, federalism is largely dead. So the federal government can control much of what happens at a state and local level. And in this case, they do that through the court system and in league with the FDA. So this is one of those things that we just need to continue to pay attention to what's going on. Again, I think this is adults, activists, and mentally ill people that are willing to use children to virtue signal. And then the kids are being so confused by the amount of information that they receive every day. 
a lack of biblical training or biblical understanding. We'll talk to Warren Cole Smith from Ministry Watch in the next segment about the decline of mainline uh, denominations in America. This is serious. This is just like going back to Molech. We sacrificed them in the womb in the abortion clinic. Why wouldn't we sacrifice them with the transgender movement? So we're going to keep paying attention to this. I've got more on that later, but we'll talk to Warren Cole Smith when we come back. Welcome back. It's Steve Noble, The Steve Noble Show. Great to be with you today. Oftentimes you'll hear me say things about uh, mainline denominations like uh, the Methodist Church, UMC, or the Lutheran Church, or the Episcopalian Church, why uh, Church of Christ, things like that, uh, PCUSA. And I'll often say, you know, these churches have 25 or 30 Easter's left, and then they're done. And I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that, uh, which for some people sounds kind of heartless, but it isn't. Uh, I have a heart for the things of God. And so when I see churches that are walking away from that, that, do you want that church to remain open? Do you want people showing up? I don't. And so when I read this article earlier today, the decline of the main line continues, but non-denoms, non-denominational churches and Anglicans, which is fascinating to me, are on the rise. This was in Ministry Watch, an incredible ministry uh, uh, being run by my friend Warren Cole Smith, who's the president. And Warren's been around a while, wrote for World Magazine, a great thinker, great writer. Warren, it's so great of you to call in. Thanks for the last minute. Yes. How you doing, my friend? <laughs> I'm doing great. It's my birthday today. Oh, how awesome is that? Happy birthday, my friend. 7-Eleven. Yeah, you can go to 7-Eleven and get a free slurp and tell them I sent you. Yeah, well, see, see, people from the north like me know exactly what you're talking about, but I think some of our southern friends might be a little confused by the 7-Eleven reference. But that's cool. Happy birthday, man. I, I uh, Thanks for mentioning that. I, I really appreciate you over the years. You've been a great blessing. I've learned a lot from you and just appreciate that you continue to speak out on these issues. This was uh, – what, what caught you – because when you wrote this article in Ministry Watch, you were referencing – a study by demographer Ryan Burge. I pay attention to this stuff all the time. I know you do. But what what was it about this particular study that caught your attention and then you wrote about it for Ministry Watch? Yeah, two or three things. Uh, one is that, I mean, I, I guess I'm sort of a demography geek. You know, there's an old saying that demography is destiny. And uh, so mm-hmm. whenever I see these demographic studies about the church, uh, I take a particular interest, have particular interest in them. And one of the things that this study uh, identified is, you know, what you can just see in the very headline itself, the decline of the mainline continues. Those mainline churches that you've already identified, Steve, that are, you know, in decline, this this decline has been going on for, you know, 50 years, but it's become so much more acute in the last few years. So I think those are the those are the couple of things. A, the decline of the main line continues, largely, I think, because of their theological liberalism. But number two, they're in, in some ways, a death spiral. You referenced it when, in the setup where you said that they might only have 25 Easter's left. And um, I, I think that that could certainly be true, that the, the, excel- the decline is accelerating. And then when you look at the United Methodist Church, which, again, you mentioned, and the split that's going on there— um, even though right now only about 20 to 25 percent of the individual of individual congregations in the United Methodist Church have left, they represent between 30 and 40 percent of mm. the actual membership of the United Methodist Church. 
because they're mostly the larger churches. They're mostly the growing churches that are leading. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's, uh, we'll talk about that briefly about non-denominational and Anglican churches, uh, which are, are not experiencing what the mainline denominations are experiencing. Uh, d- can we boil that down? I mean, the, the, the eventual death of these particular brands, Warren, can we boil that down to just essentially God has left the building? I mean, they walked away from the inerrancy in, in, of Scripture. They've walked away from the authority of Scripture. And so God's not working there. And so, of course, they're going to die. Well, I think that, you know, obviously as a, as a Christian, somebody who believes that, you know, there is a spiritual battle going on here, I don't think there's any doubt that that, that that is a factor. I think on a more sociological and cultural level, it's just that these churches don't stand for anything in, anymore. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, they're basically social clubs, and social clubs can grow, but if they don't stand for anything, if they don't believe in anything, if they're not, you know, working for anything, why would anyone— choose to be a part of them, and I think that most people are choosing not to be a part of them. I mean, again, the decline is has been precipitous in these denominations in the last few years. Yeah, so let's turn the corner and look at the other side of the coin, Warren. I'm talking to Warren Cole-Smith from Ministry Watch, uh, which is an excellent ministry, by the way, empowering don- and donors to Christian ministries, and, and will help you understand what's going on out there in the ministry world, especially with respect to being a good steward of your dollars that you might want to donate. That's ministrywatch.com. So on the other other side of the coin, Warren, non-denominational churches uh, seem to be doing well. And the Anglican church in particular, which you became a member of, is doing really well. Why do you think that's happening? Well, I think it's happening in part uh, for different reasons. I think the non-denoms, um, the, especially sort of the megachurch, uh, is, um, you know, they're, they they reflect what what people like. Um, you know, it's like uh, some people call a, a, a non-denominational megachurch a buffet or a cafeteria yeah. experience. You can find what you're looking for there. I, I don't think that's always a good thing now. I, I mean, Mm-mm, I think there's either. some, you know, benefits to that. But, you know, it, there's also some real problems in the non-denominational megachurch movement right now. I think the Anglican Church is thriving uh, and prospering for maybe a slightly different reason. I think that there is a yearning and a hunger on the part of many people um, for a sense of history, for a sense mm-hmm. of belonging to a body that is not not uh, that, that links them to the history of the church. And I think the Anglican Church does that for a lot of Christians. I'm, as, as you mentioned, I go to an Anglican church, and in the early days of the Anglican church, and by that I mean 10 or 15 years ago because it's a very new denomination, um, a, there were a lot of disgruntled Episcopalians in the Anglican right, church. Right, But yeah. now it's uh, there's a lot more of um, people coming out of the Southern Baptist Church, people coming out of the PCA, and by God's grace, a lot of new converts as well. I would say that in my little congregation of 150 people, we probably, you know, baptized a third of those people ourselves wow. as new wow. converts since, um, you know, since we've been around. So I, I think that, that in some ways those phenomena are different, uh, but I do think in both cases there is a longing to be a part of a church and a part of a community that mm-hmm. actually stands for something and right. not just drifts with the winds of culture. And I think that might be what both of those uh, have in common. 
Yeah, such a great point. Our son uh, and his wife, they got married back in March. They're in San Francisco. They go to a great non-denominational church there, Reality San Francisco. And that church partners a lot with the Anglican church around the corner. I actually went, I was there for uh, Ash Wednesday a year ago, Warren. I would say, hands down, it was the most powerful church service I've ever attended in my life as a Christian. And and that young generation, our son's 27, about to turn 28, there is an interest in a return to orthodoxy. There's an interest in tradition. There's an interest in formality, getting away from kind of the non-denominational, what people like, to something of significance. And like you mentioned, that whole notion of an actual community that stands for something and stands together is also something that's missing for a lot of these younger people who are part of the the uh, what we call now the loneliest generation. Such a fascinating subject. So well written as always. Warren, thanks, buddy, for taking the time. Happy birthday. Have a great day, my friend. Yeah, man. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. Appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Take care of yourself. That was Warren Smith, Warren Cole Smith, ministrywatch.com. I'll say some more about the whole Anglican thing because that's fascinating to me. But I want to get to these other articles. Pride Month is sterile, the declining support for same-sex marriage. Isn't that wild? And if you call teachers heroes, you're a part of the problem. We'll be right back. Welcome back, 7-Eleven fans all over the place. Glad that you are here. Uh, I'm going to d- jump into these other couple articles I wanted to talk about, just looking out over on the uh, the horizon to see what's going on out there so we can be aware of what's happening um, around the country. We can pray properly, lament properly, and uh, share and communicate and hopefully educate properly. And uh, you know, d- a lot of the things that I'll talk about on the show, I, how much – overlap there is when I'm doing shows like today when I'm just looking at different articles and stuff how much overlap is there between what I do and what you hear on Clay Travis and Buck Sexton or Sean Hannity or Fox News or whatever Uh, uh, probably 40 percent 50 percent overlap but the thing that none of those guys do and I would include Glenn Beck in this as none of them it's not redemptive none of that stuff is redemptive so maybe go hey I love the Daily Wire so do I there's a lot about the Daily Wire I like. There's almost nothing redemptive there. Like Jesus Christ is the way, born again, spirit-filled. Almost nothing. And people go, I love Matt Walsh. Yeah, there's a lot about Matt Walsh that I like too. He's not pointing people to Jesus Christ. You got to put your faith in Christ. You got to confess and repent. Be full of the Holy Spirit. Be born again, like Jesus said to Nicodemus. You, have you ever heard Matt Walsh talk about that? Got a huge audience. There's a lot of things he does that I agree with. And I'm like, hey, that's good. That was really good. But it's not redemptive. So, and I think that's probably one of the reasons I've never you know, like been invited into the bigger world there is because I'm going to always be redemptive as much as I can. And, you know, the whole Jesus thing. Ooh, let's not take that too far. Eh, you can't take that far enough. So anyway, I did want to, uh, if, by the way, if you like Warren, uh, he didn't have time to stay on. But if, if you, like Warren, uh, started attending an Anglican church, uh, would you call in and share what it is about the Anglican church that you love? Why did you switch? Why did, Why are you at an Anglican church? If that's you, I'd love for you to call in and just share that with us because it is fascinating to me. Our son is 27, almost 28, and he loves orthodoxy. He loves, appreciates liturgy, tradition, a little more formality. He's about, uh, he's, he's, you know, he, he spends most of his a reading time looking at uh, theological and uh, treatises and church fathers from like the, the 400s to the 800s. 
so really deep. And there's those strains of Christianity that are still alive, but they're harder to find in a, in a non-denominational or even a denominational church that's contemporary. We've lost a lot of that tradition, that weight, that formality, that awe in the Anglican church uh, has captured a lot of that. So if you go to an Anglican church, would you call in and just share a little bit why you're at an Anglican church? Because most likely you didn't grow up in one. So why, why are you in one? And if you want to describe it, that would be great. Uh, maybe you're even an Anglican priest listening to the show. Uh, and you can call in. That would be awesome. 866-348-7884 is our number. 866-348-7884. If you happen to go to an Anglican church, I would just love to hear why. Uh, and I really appreciate the Anglican church. So this isn't a trick or a trap or anything. Um, but give us a call. If you, if you go to an Anglican church now, I'd love to hear why and, and how you would describe it. Uh, 866-348-7884 or 866-34-TRUTH. Anglicans only in the second half of the Steve Noble Show. 866-348-7884 or 866-34-TRUTH. Especially with younger people because they've been been being sold a, a bill of goods and a lot of cotton candy ever since they got in, in, indoctrinated into the digital world and they got a smartphone and, and YouTube and all the other stuff. It's just cotton candy garbage stuff all over the place. And so they they don't see a lot of weighty things. And so the Anglican Church is like, hey, this is this is much more serious. You, that, you get liturgy and orthodoxy in there. I'm not compromising scripture, but liturgy and orthodoxy, which is more in line with the history of the church, as opposed to the flip-flops and skinny jeans thing. Then you're like, hmm, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to take this more seriously. Well, good, you should, as, as should all of us. So if you're an Anglican person, go to Anglican Church and want to share that. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, 866-348-7884 or 866-34-TRUTH for any of you Anglican brothers and sisters out there. Okay, uh, let's do this one. Pride Month is sterile. What a great headline. Uh, This was in World Magazine. A look at what may be behind declining support for same-sex marriage. And you're like, what? Hold on a second. Really? Uh, Yes. So this was in a study. This was in... uh, Newsweek, uh, this was from a Gallup poll, their annual values and beliefs survey. Americans are becoming less accepting of same-sex relationships, poll shows. Isn't that wild? Uh, and it shows that across the political spectrum, Americans are becoming less convinced of the morality of same-sex relationships. It's fascinating. According to Gallup, from 2022 to 2023, the percentage of Republicans who consider same-sex relations morally acceptable has dropped from 56 to 41%. That's Republicans. While approval among Democrats has dropped from 85 to 79%. That's just in a year. That's a 6% drop from 85 to 79% amongst Democrats. Only independents have increased support with 73% approving same-sex relations, up from 72% a year ago. Taking a step back, the big picture is statistically significant. The past year has seen overall acceptance of same-sex relations in America drop from 71 to 64 percent, a full seven percentage points, and larger than any other change in American values and beliefs polled by Gallup. Isn't this interesting? How can this shift be explained? Up front, we should acknowledge there are several factors that shape the morality of a nation, and the most significant are spiritual and not immediately measurable. But there may be some explanations that offer at least some encouragement. LGBTQ activists may have overplayed their hand. The first factor that may be influencing changing attitudes on same-sex relations in America is what we might call pride fatigue. Can I get an amen? 
Now that June is over, many of us are more than ready to our, to, for our local coffee shops, big box stores, and governments to go back to attending to their reason de terre. Serving coffee, selling goods, punishing evil, and rewarding good. Not shilling for a small minority's sexual preferences. And LGBTQ activists may have overplayed their hand. No kidding. As rainbow flags fly over increasingly more disruptive and deviant trends from drag queen story hour at the neighborhood library to coerced speech on preferred pronouns in the workplace, it's become nearly impossible to keep up with the revolution, right? LGBTQIA+, by the way. And while more Americans are waking up to the twisted worldview of transgender ideology, perhaps they are also seeing the logical, moral, and most importantly, theological connections underneath the ongoing sexual revolution. That's a revolution that has given us, uh, us men receiving awards for winning swimming comp- competitions against women. Supreme Court justices refusing to say what a woman is and Target selling chest binders and tuck-friendly swimwear to kids. Not only is it exhausting, it has all become more patently absurd, and Americans may now be waking up. But there's also another demographic explanation. Ooh, now we're going to touch the third rail here, okay? This is... All right, check this out. LGBTQ ideology is inherently sterile. Homosexual relations are naturally infertile. Transgender surgeries do not irreverse, do irreversible damage to one's reproductive capacities. What this means is that the vast majority of those who identify as LGBTQ are not reproducing. They are not replacing themselves. Indeed, many of them cannot or will not. But conservatives who hold traditional morality can, and they are. The statistics show that progressives who are morally aligned with LGBTQ activists are having fewer kids than their conservative counterparts. In other words, the future belongs to the fecund. I don't even know what that means. And as Christians obey the creation mandate and have children brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we might expect the moral acceptance of same-sex relations to continue to fall. One of the best lines in the 90s blockbuster movie Jurassic Park is this, life finds a way. And it does. Nature reveals God's complementary design for the propagation of the species. Pride Month can't change that. Isn't that interesting? So you've got people, I mean, overplay their hands, which liberals tend to do. Overplay their hands, and then they just get all, talk about pride, all full of themselves. And and because it's given over, reprobate, Romans 1, they just go further and further and further and further and further, which is why now you've got a movement starting to redefine pedophilia as minor attracted persons, and we need to cut them some slack because they were born that way. So there's that. But the other side, and the Muslims know this, especially in Europe, and us homeschoolers know it too, Uh, who is actually reproducing? Ultimately, this is a numbers game. Who is reproducing? Mark Stein wrote an incredible book about this years ago about what's going on in Europe, that they are just collapsing in on themselves because they're not having babies. But do you know what population in Europe? Well, it's, it's increased over the last 20 years, especially over the last 10. And they're reproducing. Do you know who that is? Muslims. Muslims are going to be able to take over just based on numbers many European countries without firing a shot, without violence, without anything other than sex, reproduction. And liberals tend to have fewer kids. Conservatives have more. Conservative homeschoolers don't let anybody know they have even more. 
Interesting, isn't it? What would Darwin say about the LGBTQIA community not being able to replace itself? Ask that of an Darwin. Welcome back. It's Steve Noble, the Steve Noble Show. And uh, if you could, if you missed the show, and you know we all have lives, so that's uh, fine and normal. You can grab it, podcast, Apple, Google Play. Uh, I don't think we've solved this. Spotify's cool. We haven't. iHeartRadio is still a train wreck. I don't know what's going on with iHeartRadio, but Google, Apple, Spotify. Or you can just go to the website, thestevenobleshow.com. You can grab the podcast that way. Or Facebook and Rumble, and you can just watch the show if you missed it, uh, like we're doing right now. So you can be here in my Star Wars-themed studio uh, if you watch the video side of it, which is the same as the radio show. But we do have commercial breaks on radio, and so if you're on the video side, Facebook or Rumble, then we have a kind of a sidebar conversation. That's another like almost 15 minutes that we have together between 4 and 5 p.m. Uh, during the week. So I, this, this was fascinating to me, just the title of this article. If you call teachers heroes, you're part of the problem. Now, well, not, this is a great little byline opening. When we regard teachers as heroes, we shouldn't be surprised when they believe their duties include having discussions normally reserved for parents. See that? See, see, interesting, isn't it? Many factors have contributed to the downfall of America's schools. One rarely discussed issue is the disproportionate praise heaped on the teaching industry, which has led teachers to believe the scope of their influence ought to extend beyond the teaching of facts and figures. As a society, we have praised teachers to the extent that even mild criticism of the profession is met with a chorus of boos. My sister is a teacher. Remember, didn't you see this in, in, uh, during the COVID shutdowns and everything? And the teachers scrambling to figure it out. Teachers are heroes. When discussing widespread problems in the profession, instead of presenting an actual argument, those who reflexively defend the industry will often mention having friends or relatives who are teachers as if this anecdotal tidbit is a meaningful response. Teachers are heroes is practically an infallible dictum. It is unclear why teachers, by default, deserve the disproportionate praise our society gives them. Even suggesting that they might deserve merely the same amount of respect we give most other professions will be perceived by many as an attack on teachers. The prevailing wisdom suggests it is particularly noble to be a teacher. Is it especially noble to teach fourth grade social studies? Is it more noble than delivering packages? Is it one of the industries more replaceable than the other? Kids can and are being educated by parents at home, a practice growing in popularity in our public and in some cases private schools, deteriorate into uh, growing in popularity as our public and in some cases private schools deteriorate into cesspools of leftist orthodoxy. That's been going on for about 100 years, by the way. Short of actually working for UPS or like, or the like, parents cannot replace a nationwide package delivery system, suggesting that one of these professions is at least partially replaceable by parents, that being education. Many educators see themselves as quasi-parents who are responsible for crafting our children's values and beliefs. Therein lies the rub. When we regard teachers as heroes, we should not be surprised when they believe their duties include having discussions normally reserved for parents, which is why in many states when the state legislatures are saying, hey, a teacher cannot hide a gender conversation, a homosexual conversation. I think I'm gay. I, don't, I can't come out to my parents. Teachers can't hide that from their parents. And when we say teachers are heroes, 
then you kind of loft the teacher's perspective of themselves. See what they're talking about here? Teaching long division is not heroic, but if our society convinces teachers otherwise, it is unlikely that educators will place appropriate limits on the breadth of their influence because we bear responsibility for creating this hero complex, but also want teachers to stick to facts and figures. Republicans have asked two mutually exclusive concepts. I've asked for two mutually exclusive concepts. The counter argument posits that teachers are heroes because they have saved countless troubled students by offering them an environment that they lack at home. The first part of this statement is true, but embedded within the second part is an implication that warrants further discussion. A student from a broken home with deadbeat parents will benefit from spending time with any functioning adults. Students would develop similar bonds if they spent seven hours a day with realtors, and troubled students would inevitably benefit from those relationships. Put simply, children without parental role models will always benefit from spending time with adults who are more responsible and loving than absentee or abusive parents. Teachers happen to be the only professions in a position to fill that role. This should not be confused with the claim that teachers are the only people capable of filling that role as they possess a unique moral aptitude the rest of us lack. At the very least, teachers ought to demonstrate they are good at their jobs both before deserving disproportionate praise or any praise. Is there anything more pernicious than a bad teacher? How about a public school system filled with bad teachers? We ought to examine empirical data, uh-oh, and draw conclusions about the performance of the teaching industry over the last few decades. We might discover that the way we have lionized teachers bears no proportion to the amount of praise the industry deserves. If the teaching industry is not to blame for how our children have been educated, then what is? Some will suggest that educators are hamstrung by lesson plans and are only doing what is required of them. In some cases, this might be true, but this disqualifies them from being heroes. To argue otherwise would be to assume the following. Teachers who knowingly infect the minds of America's youth with poisonous ideas are heroes nonetheless and deserve the elevated status we give them. For educators who are unhappy with the trajectory of our public school system, a good place to start would be educating. In other words, they should refuse to teach formation that they know to be infused with toxic ideology. We cannot have it both ways. Teachers cannot be heroes while lacking the courage to push back against the insidious Marxist uh, curriculum. That's a great point. If teaching facts and figures is courageous, then surely insurance brokers and UPS drivers are also heroes. In that case, employed society would consist almost exclusively of heroes as most professions have value. That is not to say that being a teacher is easy as nearly all professions are challenging in their own way. Being a great teacher requires certain skills, just as being a great carpenter has its own requirements. Dealing with a classroom of screaming kids requires different tools than building cabinets, but being different does not mean being heroic. A better approach would be to reserve the word hero for those who pull people from burning buildings or dodge bullets on the battlefield. Honesty is a critical component of fixing our public schools. We currently treat teachers like emotionally fragile beings unable to accept a truthful characterization of their profession. Taking this dishonest, condescending approach will benefit only those who see our public schools as yet another opportunity to infect America's youth with harmful ideology. Whoa. Okay. So that, that one, uh, if you're a teacher, because then you say that, right? As soon as somebody says they're a teacher, do you have a, a do you have a desire inside of you to uh, heap praise upon them? Is that, is that your natural response to somebody being a teacher? And if it is, and I feel that same pressure, uh, why? 
That's that's what this one of the things this article is doing is pointing out why why do we elevate teachers to that? I think for a lot of us it's cuz they put have to deal with being honest, deal with 20 or 25 or 30 uh kids for 7 or 8 hours a day in a in younger grades in, in one classroom with like a little bit of break here and there. But that that's a tough gig, right? But is that tougher than painting houses 10 hours a day? Being a plumber? Working in the field? Delivering packages? Throwing boxes around at FedEx? Is that... See the point there? So we've lofted the profession of teaching. And if you just go in the article, also talks about this. All right, fine. You guys are heroes. You're awesome. Let's go look at your the results. In public education around the country, your results stink. They do. That's quantifiable. That's not me being some bashing homeschooler. That's just quantifiable. The, the education system in America is terrible. We're, America's the greatest country in the world. Okay, not when it comes to education. <laughs> and a few other things, by the way. Certainly not when it comes to education. We're, we're way down the road, especially for being the biggest, baddest boy on the block, so to speak. But when you see the other side of this, when we say teachers are heroes, teachers are heroes, the teachers are heroes, because, oh, that's because I'm in here uh, helping out the next generation. Therefore, uh, I'm capable of making that kind of impact. And so teachers now, that's why we see this pushback when parents want to get involved with the schools and the school system, the National Education Association, the teachers uh, unions, the whole Democrat machine around education man they can don't you dare start we're the teachers here we're the heroes you aren't we're the ones dealing with your brats seven or eight hours a day monday through friday not you you drop them off and especially you christians you guys are brainwashing them so we're trying to just help them be good people in here and activists and progressives and atheists so our teachers heroes mm-hmm. some all by definition, just because you're a teacher, you're a hero. Mm-mm. Hey, just because I have a Christian talk radio show, does that mean I'm a better Christian than you are? Mm-mm. Nope, it doesn't. It means I'm a different Christian than you are, but it doesn't mean I'm a better one. I don't have more value. God's not going, oh, Steve gets a bigger place in heaven because he talks to a lot of people every week and Sally over there and Jim over there don't. No, you could talk to very few people a week and be a better ambassador for Christ than me. Numbers don't don't get fooled by the numbers. How do you live your life? What kind of character do you have? Nobody knows who you are, but you you very likely could end up in a much bigger mansion than a lot of us. People know who I am. They don't know who you are, perhaps. I might be walking by your mansion in heaven going, whoa, look at that. And then you walk by mine and go, wow, it's a little smaller than I expected it to be. Just things to think about. But it's something we should all think about this article. If you think all teachers are heroes, you're part of the problem. Don't give them more authority than they should have. And don't pump them up more than they deserve to be pumped up. Appreciate teachers? Absolutely. Worship them? Call them heroes? Some? Probably not most. Really, really thought provocative. 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 (laughs) I don't teach English, so relax. Anyway, there you go. Uh, t- tomorrow, going to be a really interesting show tomorrow. Uh, a friend of mine's been on many times with a great ministry called the Peace Ministry, which deals with women, uh, mostly women, dealing with uh, domestic abuse. But tomorrow, we're going to talk about the need for rest. 
Do you ever rest? Do you ever take time away from our busy lives? That'll be fascinating. This is Steve Noble on The Steve Noble Show. God willing, I'll talk to you again real soon. And like my dad always used to say, ever forward. Another program powered by The Truth Network.